Thanks to Audible for supporting Industry Focus. Ponzi Supernova, a six-part original series, is available on Audible channels. You can listen over at audible.com slash Ponzi. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, March 24th, and we're talking options. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined in the studio by Motley Fool Premium Analyst J.P. Bennett. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Yeah, JP, I mean, what's up? This is the first time I think you've ever been on Industry Focus, right? It definitely is. Yeah, so for listeners that might not know JP, um, he works on the Motley Fool Options product with Jeff Fisher. Yep. Uh, I think it's fair to say that you are also known at HQ for having the wildest hair in the office. <laughs> I think that would be a pretty fair assessment. You want to describe the look that you're working with right now? Um, right now, it's just bleached to be pretty close to white. Uh, it's getting a little long in the two, so I need to go in for a haircut, but we're just rolling with it for right now. Do you get that done here at HQ, your haircuts? Um, no, I do not. I have to go uh, work with someone who I have a lot of trust in, because when you put that much bleach in your hair, you get very close to uh, bleaching it to the point where it falls out. So uh, if you're off by just a couple of minutes, I think it could see me with very, very, very short hair the next time. <laughs> well, listeners, if you want to check out uh, JP's look, check out the videos that we're going to post for Fool.com. We always wind up breaking up our podcasts and posting them as videos and standalone articles. Um, so, we're talking options today, and today's discussion was really a product of some conversations that I had with listeners at our meetup in Austin during South by Southwest. And uh, anytime we meet up with listeners or people that are fans of the show and The Fool, I always like to ask them, you know, like, what do you like that we do? What aren't we covering enough that you're interested in? And I had several people, I think John and Bruce, just a couple guys to give shout outs to, um, who had mentioned, you know, we'd love to hear more about options. It's something that um, we'd love a primer on and at least an introduction to. And um, it's something I don't know all that well, mm -hmm. frankly. And so um, when you don't know something, you bring in someone smarter than you <laughs> to talk about it. So. Well, that's debatable. <laughs> so uh, today's episode, I think. We'll do a kind of options 101 okay. with Professor J.P. Bennett, and uh, and then talk about some of the questions that we got on Twitter because I put out a little call just to see what people were thinking and what they were curious about when it came to options. So to kick us off, what are options? Well, in a nutshell, options are what are referred to as derivative instruments. So they derive their value based on something else, and in this case, it's the underlying stock. So. Apple options are going to have a value based on where the stock of Apple is trading at a given time. And although I think most listeners will know that there are like a myriad of option strategies with crazy names and like a bunch of different option positions, and uh, it may seem like there's just so much to learn, but if you boil it down, there are really only two options that you can use there's calls and there's puts. Calls benefit when a stock rises puts benefit when a stock falls, and you can either buy or sell them. So there's really only a couple of basics that you just have to master, and then it just the world opens up and you have a myriad of possibilities in terms of strategies that you can do. Yeah, and, and you get into that complexity when you start layering these different yep. options yep. together, yep. right? Um, so, so how do they work, and, and what are the different elements that people need to focus on? Because at the end of the day, these are really contracts, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So. Um, they're derivative instruments, but they enable you to use leverage. So every option contract 
represents the right to control shares, uh, 100 shares of a given stock. So one Apple call contract uh, represents the right to buy 100 shares of Apple. So they really have the potential to kind of leverage your returns or leverage your losses. And so uh, when you're you're using strategies, you have to be mindful of that. And so if you basically look at it, uh, hypothetical company stocks trading at 100, if you own a call with a strike price, so uh, just to double back, a strike price is the price that is specific to the option that you either buy or sell, and that's kind of the pivot point for where the value uh, is derived. So the stock's trading at 100, you buy a call contract for 100, uh, or with a strike price at 100, that means that you have the right to buy shares at the price of $100, regardless of where the stock is trading at expiration. The stock could double and be at 200 at expiration, you still get to buy shares for $100. So that's where your profit comes from. If the stock's trading at 100 and you buy a call contract with a strike price of 90, then you get the right to buy those shares at $90, right? And so you, there are, for every stock, there's uh, specific expiration dates. And within that expiration date, there are a bunch of different strike prices. It'll depend based on where the stock is trading, how liquid it is, and things like that. And so you can kind of tailor the strategy to suit your needs. And if you're buying a call option, mm-hmm. if you're going to be long a call option, right? Um, and long means you are you're purchasing it, you're not yep. selling it. Yep. Um, so if you're looking at a call option, and and that is, if you're going to go long, the opportunity to buy a stock at yep. a predetermined price. What you're really looking at here is the exercise price, the duration, and then the premium that you're paying mm-hmm. for that contract, mm-hmm. right? That that's really the fee that you're paying for that opportunity, yep. uh, the optionality. Yep. So if you kind of want to get into the to the uh, the weeds in terms of how options are priced, right? And there are really only a few matters that really really determine the price. Like you said, the strike price in relation to the stock price, uh, the implied volatility. So a stock that really doesn't do much, it just kind of meanders al- along. Uh, the odds of it moving significantly from where it currently is is pretty low. And so the the premium that you just mentioned that you'll have to pay for that isn't very high. Um, you have to worry about the risk-free rate, though, in current environments. Uh, you really don't have to because it doesn't have much of an influence. And you have to worry about like how long uh, the the option will be alive for, so to speak, because they are instruments that have a, a finite life period. And so you can buy options for some stocks that expire at the end of the week. Uh, in some cases, you can buy one that go out up to two years. And so, so there are just a few things that you really have to kind of have a handle on to make sure, and I, I don't really think we have time to get into the weeds in terms of pricing and determining whether or not you're getting a fair price, um, but there are really only a few factors that you really have to kind of focus in on. And uh, we talked about calls. You want to talk yep. a little bit about puts as well? Yep. So, puts, uh, and if you think about specifically put writing, that's actually one of our bread and butter strategies in Motley Fool Options. So, if you think about it, uh, put writing, uh, whereas calls benefit when the stock goes up, puts benefit when the stock goes down. So, if you're bearish on a stock, you could buy puts. Um, but actually, what we prefer to do is to sell puts. So, when you're selling a put, you're going to bring in that income, right? So, if you buy an option, you have to pay for that right to either sell shares at a given price or to buy shares at a given price. When you sell an option, you're taking essentially the other side of that trade, and so you're being compensated for that. Uh, If you sell a call, you may have to sell shares at the strike price. 
and because we don't know where the stock's going to end up, you're going to get paid a premium for essentially taking on that risk. When you sell puts, you're basically saying, uh, maybe the stock falls below this strike price. We don't really know, so I'm going to require you to pay me a premium in order, in order for me to kind of take on that risk from you. So if you want to think about it, uh, one of the best analogies is probably like, you're an insurance uh, company in this case, right? You don't really know what's going to happen, but you can help someone in terms of protecting them from a stock falling. And in order to protect them to provide that insurance, you have to be compensated, right? So if you buy auto insurance, they don't just provide you that insurance for free, right? You have to pay them for them to be able to, or for them to be willing to take on that risk. And so basically, in, in the case of writing puts, you find stocks that you really like, you find a strike price that you're okay with buying shares at, and you make sure you're getting fairly compensated in terms of the premium that you'll collect. And you basically become the insurance uh, company for the person who's taking the other side of that trade. And the logic with that is you would be buying back or you'd be buying these yep. shares yep. at a price that's lower than current market value. Yep. And so because it's a company that you like anyways, you're willing to, you know, say buy it at ninety, you Bingo. know, three months from now, even though yep. it's trading at only hundred. Yep. And go back to Apple, what's it? It's around like one forty. Let's say you're like, you know, one thirty five is a great price for Apple. It's not there yet. I would buy it as soon as it hits there. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to collect some income by selling puts at that strike price. And if it gets there, great, I'll get those shares. And if not, at least I'll have generated some income while I'm waiting for that to happen. What are some of the other really common option mm -hmm. moves that you guys use in Molly Fool Options? So the two basics, put writing, like we kind of already touched on, and the other one would that is normally a, a great strategy for beginners is um, covered calls. So in a covered call, you already own the underlying stock. So you own 100 shares of Apple, let's say. And you layer on top of that selling calls. So Apple's trading around 140. You can potentially say sell the 145 call. And so basically what you're doing is you're you're increasing the income that you're going to generate from a given position, right? So you're gonna get the dividend from Apple, but in addition to that, you're also going to generate that option income. Now the potential downfall of that is that you have to sell those shares at at 145 if the stock ends above it and you don't do anything. Uh, again, little side note: there are a, a bunch of different things you could do as you get closer to expiration if you don't want to sell shares. But that, but that's like the biggest risk of writing covered calls. Um, so you basically one of the cornerstones of that is never write covered calls on stocks you don't want to sell because eventually you're going to end up in a position where the stock, you know, skyrockets and you just sit there and you're like, man, I should not have covered those those shares. That you know, extra two dollars per share in income really doesn't offset the sting of a stock moving $15, $20 um, by the time expiration comes. Yeah, and, and one thing that I think is probably worth clarifying um, for listeners is when options get exercised. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think that that might be something that's a little bit confusing. It might be that um, you write puts and, and I take the other side of it, mm -hmm. and you know I pay a premium for that. But um, if the strike price doesn't wind up being somewhere that's opportune for me to exercise it, mm -hmm. it will just wind up expiring and I'll eat that premium, right? Yep. So, yeah, in, in most cases, the person that's taking the other side of the trade is a market maker. So, think about Wall Street, right? He's one of those guys on Wall Street with his computer and he's he's basically hedging out a bunch of positions and, and doing stuff like that. And so, uh, the vast majority of cases, you have to wait till you get really close to expiration for those options to be, to be exercised because 
An options premium is composed of two components. There's the intrinsic value, which is the discrepancy between the current stock price and the strike price. So if you bought calls of Apple at 140, it goes up to 145. You now have $5 of intrinsic value because you're essentially buying the stock at $5 below the current market price. The other component is the component that kind of decays away over time, and that's what's referred to as time value. And that is a function of some of the things we referred to in the past. And so that component kind of withers away. And so when you're selling options, that's the component that you want to go away over time. And so, you know, if you have bought an option, um, it doesn't make sense to exercise it unless there really isn't all that much time value left. Now, there are um, certain instances, like I said, for every kind of general rule of thumb, there are those exceptions. Uh, there's something referred to as dividend poaching and things like that. Um, but for the vast majority of cases, Unless there's like basically no time value left on the stock or on the option, excuse me, uh, those options won't be exercised. So one of the great things, right, here at the Motley Fool, we're kind of long-term investors, right? We we like to think in the long term, and because options are uh, instruments that have kind of a, a small lifespan, maybe three, four months. Uh, especially when you're writing puts, that kind of is the sweet spot for where we're targeting. Uh, they can whips on value pretty significantly over the time, right? So you sell the the put option and the stock falls. Uh, the value is actually it may increase by a small smaller percentage in terms of like dollars. So the stock falls a dollar, maybe your your puts only change by like fifty cents. But in terms of percentages, the move is going to be a lot greater. And so you you can see those fluctuating values and, and just think to yourself, oh my gosh, like what did I get myself into? But you just kind of got to sit pat and and have that kind of long term. Here's why I initially did the strategy. We're going to kind of ride it out and wait and see and let that time value because that time value component is going to fluctuate significantly. But over time, because when you get say you buy an option that expires in four months, uh, that's worth a lot more because a lot more can happen in four months than if you bought an option that expires five days from now. Right. The stock really. The, the odds of it moving over the course of three or four months is, is a lot higher than over the course of five days. And so the time value is going to, all things considered, right, or all things equal, ceteris paribus, uh, the option that expires three to four months from now is going to have a lot more time value than the one that expires five days. And you touched on downside yep. a little bit. And one of the reasons that we kind of started talking about options on the show is a lot of people had been looking at Snapchat and okay. saying, like, <laughs> you know, this is this is a company that a lot of people are bearish on. Mm-hmm. You know, should I short it? Okay. And we had kind of introduced the idea. Well, I'm generally against shorting. I, I think that it just opened you up to a ton of downside risk. Um, and you'll see people use options as a limited downside way to do some of the similar mm-hmm. types of, you know. Betting against a stock. Yeah, there's there is no uh, risk risk free lunch though, right? Um, there are definitely things to consider when you're using it to make like a bearish bet. So in the case of Snapchat, um, what I would suspect in terms of the option premiums, uh, especially for the puts, if there are a lot of bearish investors and they don't want to short, they want to play through options. Those pr- those puts are going to cost a pretty penny. I think um, one example that is so crystal clear in my mind just because it was kind of one of the the first instances of seeing kind of how options can be influenced by short interest and what's happening in the stock uh, is to go back back in the early days of Tesla right when it's you know 15 20 30 dollars right and so basically what you saw uh, even back then there were a ton of people that said this stock 
is worthless. They're not going to do it, right? And so there was a really high short interest. And so essentially the cost to borrow, right? You have to you have to pay a fee to borrow those shares to sell them on the market in short. Uh, that was becoming pretty prohibitive in terms of your potential return because you're paying that fee. And so what a lot of people did is they shifted over into the options market and were using options to basically make bearish bets against Tesla. Now, what ended up happening, though, because so many people were doing that, basically the the premiums got skewed so heavily that uh, kind of the normal rules or the normal um, things that you see happen in an option market in terms of pricing just got thrown completely out of whack. And it really wasn't even that attractive to go bearish. It was actually um, really attractive to go long Tesla stock through options because those puts cost so much money because it's something everything everybody wanted to do. So that is something that you can use it to to basically make bearish bets on companies. But if it's a really crowded trade, you have to also be be very mindful, right, of options. You have to be extremely mindful of how much you're paying or how much you're collecting. Yeah, I think the important thing to remember is, like other financial instruments, mm-hmm. there is the kind of intrinsic value side of things, mm-hmm. but there is also the market sentiment that plays a role in in the price that you're paying for it. Yep, and I mean options, just like investing, they are tools that can be used uh, to create a lot of good. But they can also be used as tools of weapons of mass destruction and completely um, destroy your portfolio. But because they're they're leveraged instruments, you can do it in extremely short order. And 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 it is. Uh, I think that might be a good segue into my next question. What mm-hmm. are some other things people should know about options, or mm-hmm. or maybe some misconceptions about them, or just like before you do anything with options, mm-hmm. please know this. So, before you do anything with options. You really just kind of got to get a hang of the lingo, kind of what goes into a strategy, the the payoffs for particular strategies, and really kind of what's at stake. Because, yes, it is investing. Yes, the underlying instrument is the stock, but there are definitely um, noticeable differences in terms of like you know what it you know buying to open, writing you know contracts, just the lingo, how how things behave over time based on what the stock is doing. And so, it, if you don't go into it kind of having a pretty good grasp of that, it can be pretty quick to get uh, over. It can be, it, you can get overwhelmed pretty quickly, right? And so, getting kind of a good knowledge base. So, for options, right, uh, the service that I work on, basically, we have what is called Options U, right? Options University. And so, we always tell members, you know, go through the educational material first, make sure you're extremely comfortable with everything. Even potentially open up a paper trading account just to get familiar with how everything works and move extremely slowly, right? And just kind of make sure you're extremely comfortable with what you're doing before you do anything. Uh, the, the next thing is something we've touched on a couple of times in terms of never forget that these are leveraged instruments, right? In terms of you're buying it or um, potentially selling 100 shares of stock, right? And so you can think of it and go, man, you know, I'm selling these puts, I'm generating $1 per share, so that's 100 shares per contract. That's nice, but this stock won't fall this far. It's not, it's not going to fall this far. These, these puts are way out of the money. So let me sell 15, right? So instead of dealing with 100 shares, right, you're now dealing with uh, 1,500. So the risk there, right, depending on how how high the stock is currently, that's a that's a 
pretty significant chunk of change that you may have to be on the hook for, right? Because anything can and will happen in the financial markets. And so it is just being uh, always staying humble and never getting greedy. When we prefer to to sell options more than we buy them, right? We can get into why we do that in a little bit more. Um, but because of that, like I said, we're kind of the insurance company. We're taking the other side of that trade. And although it works out more often than not, uh, you're basically you're generating a lot of income, and it can become pretty easy if you're not disciplined to say, man, the last ten trades that I did, they worked out great. I am a genius at this. And kind of see like, okay, I'm gonna slowly increase the number of contracts I write over time, and then before you know it, you're you're in over your head, and the stocks, maybe the market just falls, or maybe one or two of the stocks that you're using options on uh, can tank, and then you're just up the creek without a paddle, right? Yeah, I I, th- I think a lot about the um, the 13 steps to investing yeah. that we have on Fool.com, and and that is the intro to buying stocks and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the pieces of advice early on is to buy your first stock. Just buy one share. Yeah. You know, buy a really small share, a really small position, maybe just one share, and follow it for a little while and see what happens mm-hmm. and, and understand what makes stocks move, what people are looking for in that company, and then take larger and larger bites as you become more familiar. And it sounds like your advice for kind of dipping your toe in options is exactly the same. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so since I knew we were gonna be talking options, I put out a call on Twitter to see what questions people had. We're going to run through those in the second half of the show. But um, before we get over there, I just want to offer some thanks again to Audible for supporting the podcast. Audible Channels has a new original series, Ponzi Supernova. This original audio documentary series tells the story you think you know. Bernie Madoff, legendary fraudster, is sent to prison for orchestrating the largest Ponzi scheme in history. But that's definitely not the full story. Drawn from hours of unheard conversations with Bernie behind bars and the interviews with the SEC, FBI, and victims of the scheme, Ponzi Supernova takes you on a fascinating journey into the dark interior of our financial system. A six-part Audible original series, Ponzi Supernova is available on channels. I gotta say, I checked out the trailer and was absolutely hooked. I mean, I host a show talking about the stock market. How can I not love a series exploring the largest Ponzi scheme ever carried out and the man behind it? Uh, I have a flight coming up to Japan in a few weeks and know exactly how I'm going to be spending my time. Listeners, if you want to check out the series, you can go over to audible.com slash Ponzi and check it out. Just a heads up, Audible and Amazon Prime members can listen for free. That's audible.com slash Ponzi. So, JP, um, we, we talked intro stuff, and mm-hmm. you know I get the sense, even, even having this conversation, um, a lot of this, you know, we, we talked about the jargon and, and the terminology and how it can be kind of tough to get used to. Um, it might be a lot to throw at listeners. Mm-hmm. And when we do have some resources on fool.com that people can check out, if you write into the show, I'm happy to send them along to you. Um, but let's get over to a couple things that people shot over to us okay. on Twitter. Um, and, and I think it highlights just kind of what how people are thinking about it and, and uh, some of the early questions people have when it comes to investing in options. So Jocko asks, Explain if how options trading is different to gambling, please. It's a great question. It's definitely something that I believe is kind of like a misnomer with options, right? People tend to think that these are instruments that uh, significant or uh, 
people who are in the markets, who are on Wall Street or whatever, can use to create a lot of wealth. But anybody else who tries to use them, or they're going to get hosed. Or even people who use them on Wall Street get into a lot of trouble. But it basically, it, it's just like with investing, right? So with stocks, I believe the biggest advantage that individual investors have is their time horizon, right? So you can try to day trade, but you basically give up a lot of that advantage. And really, it's going to hurt you over the long run. It's the same thing with options, right? You can create uh, strategies or basically try and trade in a way that is very similar to gambling, where if you get a home run in one of your first couple of strategies, uh, you're really set, but otherwise you're going to end up with like no money left over, right? Or you can kind of do what we do, right? Where in options, we target consistent winners, basically creating like a diversified portfolio of option strategies to generate income, to generate long-term capital gains, and do it in a much safer, low-risk manner. And basically, we do that in terms of how we structure our trades, what type of trades we favor, the strike prices we use, expiration dates, how much we pay. And if you basically go, and I'm just looking at it right now, our updated accuracy list for all of our closed positions. So we have uh, co-advisors, Jeff Fisher and Jim Gillies. For Jeff Fisher, he has a 94.6% success rate in terms of uh, all of those strategies finish generating positive returns. And for Jim Gillies, it's 87.9, right? So more often than not, uh, we're making money on an option strategy. So uh, if you know a casino you can go to where you can gamble and achieve those success rates, please you know, fill me in because I would love to go there and, and make a lot of money and retire early. <laughs> that's, that's an excellent point. The house has uh, mm-hmm. a much steeper advantage yep. when and it comes I, to gambling. And I would also just add uh, what you just said kind of triggered it for me in terms of basically with options, right? You can basically set it up so that you are betting against the house or you are the house. And we like to set it up so that we are the house, right? So that we are winning more than we are losing. It's always better to be the house. Um, We also got a couple questions from Patrick. Um, Let me see the first one to start here. In what situation, if ever, would you have a call option and a put option on the same stock? This might be more of an advanced option uh, concept that we're going to touch on here. Yep. So there are there's straddles, there's strangles. Like there's a bunch of different strategies. More of that jargon. Condors, (laughs) right? There's a bunch of different strategies that could utilize that. And so basically, uh, in terms of thinking about those strategies, if you're buying them, you probably want to or want to have the stock move significantly. So if you think about a straddle or a strangle, right, you're basically using uh, puts and calls that are basically relatively close together. They're either the same strike price or maybe they're off by like $5, right? And so what you want to do, want uh, to happen is if you're long those, you want the stock to move really sharply in either direction so that, you know, one is going to end up worthless but the other one's going to end up with a, a lot of money. So, right, you go into earnings, you buy the puts, you buy the calls, the stock spikes hard, the puts end up worthless because they're out of the money, but the calls end up with a lot of value, and so you make a lot of money that way. Or you can do kind of the opposite, right? So, a uh, strategy that we've used, I think we have one or two that are currently active, and we actually have one that is active in on the other service I work for, Motley Fool Pro, and basically what it's referred to is a covered straddle. And so basically what you're doing there is, instead of basically buying those options and thinking the stock is 
or not thinking, probably hoping, praying that the stock is going to move a ton. Basically, uh, we have stocks that we think are relatively steady, and so basically we're looking to to double our income, right? We own those shares, we own 100 shares, and then we're also um, setting up a covered call by selling calls against that, but we're also selling puts, right? So we're also saying we'd we'd like to buy more shares if it falls, but if not, we're, we're going to generate extra income. And so that's that can be an example of... Uh, potentially a, a higher success rate strategy, in my opinion. And the thought there is, you're betting that it's going to stay within a pretty tight band mm-hmm. over the course of the contracts. Yep. And if it moves sharply in either direction, we're, we're okay with that. Mm. Uh, another question Patrick had, are there different fundamentals to look at when considering buying a long option versus buying a stock? Um, or maybe, when should I buy mm-hmm. both? So, this kind of tees up one of the the cornerstones of how we invest using options. And uh, we basically repeat it till we're blue in the face whenever we have live chats or meet members uh, that are considering joining options or something along those lines is that, you know, we are investors first and we look at the businesses, we study the businesses, we come up with what we think the stock is worth, right? Our, our estimate of what the intrinsic value of the underlying stock is. And only after we have a stock that we really like, we feel comfortable with understanding you know, what the future holds for the business and what the value of the stock is, then do we look to see if the options market is providing us with a strategy that we can utilize. right? So, we, we don't let the tail wag the dog in terms of, oh man, those puts look really good. Uh, I'm going to look at the stock and my mind is already made up though. The the company could be like completely garbage, but those puts pay so good. I'm I'm just gonna write them anyways and you know, fingers crossed. We would we never do that, right? We always business first, option strategy second. So that's basically uh, you're kind of hitting or the the reader there is kind of hitting the nail on the head is look at the business, find businesses and stocks that you like, and then look to see if you have an option strategy. And he kind of gets at in the second half that mm-hmm. when should I do both? Yep. And it's you know you're talking about several strategies before where you own the stock, yep. and then you're also you know possibly buying long options mm-hmm. or or using instruments, um, you know just based on where you think the stock price might be going in the yep. next couple months or years. Yep. If you're you're really bullish on the stock, you can basically set up option strategies that have leveraged upside. So uh, going back to a strategy that is still ongoing but is pretty close to being set in stone is we have what's referred to as a bull call spread on Apple. So we set it up uh, last year, right, when we were having the, the market sell off and everybody was panicking. And so basically we bought the uh, calls that strike at $85, right? And we sold calls that strike at $90. So there's a $5 increment there, uh, which means that the max payout is $5, right? If the stock ends above $90, you're the calls that you own at $85 end up uh, being worth $5 more than the calls that you sold. So that's what you're going to make. And we basically paid a little bit under $250 for that, right? So basically, there's the opportunity to double your money as long as the stock finishes above $90. And with the stock at $140, right? Um, even though you would have done really well if you just bought shares, the return that we were able to generate using that strategy is obviously much higher. And that's where leverage comes into play. Bingo. And the last question that Patrick had was, I'm near the expiration of the option. Do mm-hmm. I think about it differently if it's in the money versus out of the money? And this is something we touched on yep. a little bit in the first half of the show. Yep. Uh, yep. When you get close to expiration, uh, depending on the strategy and what your your plans are going forward, you do have to think about it a little bit differently. Right? When we set up strategies, like I referred to earlier, we kind of just let them kind of mature and just 
see see what happens in the market. But then when you get close to expiration, uh, if it's out of the money or in the money, and what you need to do will again depend on the strategy and kind of depend on what's what's likely to happen over the couple of days. So let's say you wrote puts and they end up out of them they're out of the money and you get close to expiration well you don't have to do anything they're going to end without any value so your best um, bet there or your your appropriate course of action or to minimize transaction costs and things like that is to just do nothing because uh, after expiration friday your broker is just going to come in and they're going to wipe those obligations from your account and you're free to write more puts in the following day uh, if they're in the money and you want to take shares, don't do anything. Your broker will automatically uh, put those shares into your account and take out the cash uh, needed to buy those shares. Uh, on the other side, flip side, if you have covered calls, if they're out of the money, don't do anything. They're going to expire worthless. If they're in the money and you want to sell shares, don't do anything. The broker is going to do it for you automatically. The, the differences come into play when you don't want that like outcome. You can potentially, even though you with puts, like let's say you want to buy those shares at that given strike price, um, there could be instances where you want to do what is referred to as rolling the contracts. So you'll buy back the contracts that you uh, that you sold in the past, and then you'll sell new ones. So you know maybe you sold April contracts, you can buy those back as you get close to expiration and write ones you know for July or something along those lines. Same thing with calls, right? So uh, it basically the the nuts and bolts of it, and I did a lot of rambling there, is that it all depends, which is. More often than not, when you're asking a basic question with options, that is the appropriate <laughs> answer, right? It's it's a lot easier when you have like specific strategies and things like that to kind of go through what you need to think about and what you need to do. But if you're working with some of the simple options mm -hmm. um, strategies, then more often than not, the broker is going to automatically kind of handle things in the background for you. Well, even with complex ones, there are certain instances where um, you're doing something that just because of technicalities, the broker won't kind of recognize, and so you have to maybe uh, either call them up or take uh, action ahead of time. But as long as the option is like one cent in the money, the broker is going to automatically exercise it uh, for you, unless you basically like if you have call contracts and they're worth like a penny, you can call them up and say, "Dude, don't do it for me. Like it's just not worth it." But uh, Otherwise, they're just going to do it. Whether or not you want that to happen is a, is an entirely different matter. Uh, one other thing that I think is probably worth touching on um, with options and your brokerage is this is something that you need to opt into and apply to mm -hmm. uh, with with pretty much all brokerages, right? And so, um, if this conversation is is something that kind of piques your interest and you want to learn more, please read up first. But um, if you want to go about possibly trading options down the road. Uh, it is not as simple as logging into your brokerage and going to the option center and making things happen, right? Yep. So again, this gets back to something we've touched on multiple times in terms of these are instruments that have leverage. And so the broker um, in kind of uh, because of self-interest, right? They just don't want to let anyone trade options and also because of rules and laws and things like that, right? But uh, if you don't have the knowledge, you can do a lot of harm really quickly, not really even in understand it. So basically, yeah, there's there's an application process that you have to go through. Um, 
nine times out of 10, depending on your broker, it's, it's relatively basic and straightforward. They, cause they're basically what they're trying to get a feel for is, you know, have you traded options before? How much do you know about options? Uh, what, how big is your account, right? Because if your account's really small, the damage that you can do is exponentially larger than someone who has a much larger account than you. And so basically after they get a feel for those type of things, there are different permission levels. Now, I think it's kind of lowercase f foolish that there isn't kind of a standardized uh, permission level hierarchy because some have like uh, levels one through three, one ha- some have zero through four, one some have one through four. But basically, the higher up you go, the more per- per- more permission can't talk this morning you have, right? So level one, you're looking at stuff like r- covered calls, right? Because really, there isn't. Uh, a whole lot of damage that you can do there because you can't write more calls than shares you already own, right? If the stock falls, well, you already own the stock, so there's not much damage there. You're not on the hook to buy shares and you don't have the cash, right? But then the higher up in terms of the permission you get, the more strategies you can get um, and also the more danger you can get yourself into. So before they kind of uh, give you those keys, right? They want to be comfortable that you're not going to, in the first month of receiving permission, go out and do, and basically blow up your, your account and make them have to close it. Um, but one important thing to re- remember too is we often see this with members who join options, right? Is that some brokers have our favorite strategies kind of a little bit higher up on the hierarchy. And some members are, are kind of frustrated because they can only follow some of our recommendations and they want to follow all of them, right? Uh, which again, probably isn't the best thing if you're just getting started. But the thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, you can always go back and apply for higher permission level. So if you only get, you know, level one permission, do a couple of trades, demonstrate to them that you know what you're doing, and then go back and ask for a higher permission level. It's very um, likely that you will receive it. There are very few cases where they won't. Um, but making sure that you just don't get frustrated and kind of stick with it. And also, because there's a high learning curve, it's not the worst thing in the world, right? Yeah, it's something that kind of saves you from yourself a yeah, little right? bit. Yeah, right. The way I like to think of it is it's kind of like there's an S-curve in terms of options, right? Uh, you learn about the extreme basics, and it's like, oh, man, this is there's only two options. You can only buy or sell. That's easy. And then you start studying, like, oh, man. There is a lot here, and it can be pretty quick to get overwhelming, but then you stick with it, and then there's just this point where it just kind of clicks, right? And once you get kind of a couple basic concepts down pat, the rest of it is just like smooth sailing. Huh. Um, anything else before I let you go, JP? I know we already threw a lot at listeners. I yeah. think we, we probably might be setting ourselves up for a follow-up show at some point down the road. I think I think that'd be great if members have a lot of good questions, stuff like that. Um, should I give a plug to Motley Fool Options I, joining you know, our service? You, right? I got you to I mean, talk about options for yeah, half an hour. I think I think that you deserve the yeah. chance to plug. I mean, that. go back. You know, ninety four point six, eighty seven point nine success rate for closed positions. Right, that's a that's a pretty good accuracy uh, rating. But I would also just. Um, encourage members to, you know, if you're interested in it, just learn more because it really does open up a wealth of possibilities in terms of generating extra income, which is great in this low yield environment, um, putting up strategies that can benefit from upside to a much greater extent than the stock itself, maybe protect you in terms of you can set up market hedges and things like that, right? There are a myriad of possibilities and if utilized correctly, options are a great instrument to enhance your portfolio, but then to go back and kind of the closing point is that uh, for most investors, for the, a large percentage of investors, the option should only ever be a complement to a core long stock portfolio because 
you know, buying shares of great stocks and holding them for a really long time, uh, that is not only tax beneficial, right? Because you're deferring those tax uh, those taxes until you sell those shares, but uh, it's really a way to basically generate most of your wealth because these strategies are expiring uh, at a much faster clip, and so you're paying short-term capital gains, and even if you're paying long-term capital gains, the the furthest you can delay them is is two years, right? And so. So options can be fun. They can be cool. They can be enticing, alluring. Use whatever word you they're want. They're sexy. Yeah, they're sexy, right? But uh, never forget to buy shares of great companies. I, I think that's a great thing to end on there. Um, well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, or if you just want to reach out and say hey, shoot us an email. You can always shoot us questions over at industryfocusfool.com. You can always tweet us at mfindustryfocus as well. If you want to check out more of our stuff, head over to iTunes and the whole uh, whole cast of shows that we have for the, from The Fool is over there, over at fool.com slash podcast as well if you want to check us out. Um, as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For J.P. Bennett, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.